Hey y'all, before we jump into today's episode, we would like to invite you to a special event we're hosting on May 30th called Women in Whiskey. Join us for an adult field trip filled with Southern fun at the Jack Daniels Distillery right here in our home state of Tennessee. Get ready to learn while sipping. We will be taking a private tour of the distillery, enjoy a barbecue lunch on the beautiful hillside, and partake in early happy hour with cocktails provided by Jack Daniels as we listen in on a conversation with women who work in the industry. The conversation will be led by yours truly, your hosts of the Steel Magnolias podcast. Learn more about the event at steelmagnoliaspodcast.com. You can grab your tickets there and we cannot wait to see you on May 30th. And now on with the show. Welcome. Today, we're going to be talking about a little country home that belonged to one of the Vanderbilts. You may know it by the name of Biltmore Estate. It's actually been coined America's largest home. So to hear it as a country home sounds kind of funny to me, but we're going to go there today. I also wanted to mention there's so many different ways you can connect with us. So whatever is your thing, if you're an Instagram person, we gotcha. If you are a Facebook group person, we gotcha. If you'd rather hear from us via a newsletter or join our Patreon community to get some exclusive content, that's available as well. So we look forward to connecting any way you see fit. So now join us at the table. I'm Lainey. And I'm Laura Beth. And we are Steel Magnolias. The strength of steel with the grace of a magnolia. We are here to have uplifting conversations about life in the South. And we've got plenty of room at our table. So pull up a chair. Okay, so I hate when I say things wrong we have, in any conversation, but much less on a podcast. I know. And we, we have a retraction to I make. I do. So when we were chatting last time and we were talking about the beautiful spring weather, which today is also Mm -hmm. like that. Um, I said, oh, do you call them daffodils or buttercups in reference to the bright yellow flower? And I paused because I was like, are those the same? I guess they are. My sister's so smart. I give her, I do. I'm like, if there's a green thumb thing in question, I for sure defer to you. So I was like, oh, buttercups. But they're not the same They're different flowers. (laughs) And that was pointed out by a wonderful listener. So thank you for bringing that to my attention. Um, Totally different species of flowers. And I I guess I think a daffodil, that little cute thing in the middle, it looks like it should be called a buttercup too. But but buttercups are smaller, right? Um, I think think they're smaller. They're not tiny, but they are smaller, (laughs) but they look just altogether different. We should just stop commenting on it altogether, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) No, I looked it up. Okay. (laughs) Um, So I could point one out now. I was like, oh, I didn't realize that's what a buttercup was. So anyhow, now if you guys want to know exactly the difference, go look it up yourself. We stand corrected. A daffodil is a daffodil, and a buttercup is a buttercup. So what do I call them? I guess I call them daffodils, (laughs) to your question. What we were describing were daffodils. Yes, yes. Well, we have the pleasure today to walk with you guys through America's largest home, the Biltmore Estate. It was built by George Vanderbilt, just a modest 8,000-acre estate in the Blue Ridge Mountains. 8,000 now. It was more than that, but we'll get to that. Yeah. 
uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. <sighs> it is magnificent. Seems oh, like a, such an understatement. So we wanted to just walk through what you would experience if you go there because you can tour it today and um, it's open. So, you know, if you've been wanting to waiting to see sort of what things are opening that you want to go visit for a late spring break or summer trip. Oh, boy. I hope you guys will put this on your list. And personally, I think spring or Christmas is the time to go. Yeah. Just as far as like the house really shines in yes. those two seasons. Yes. So. So let's just first talk about this George Vanderbilt fellow. Okay. He was the grandson of the famed industrialist and philanthropist Cornelius Vanderbilt. So George was born in 1862 into one of America's most well-known families yeah. at that time. If you're listening to this, you even today might know the name Vanderbilt. Uh, Vanderbilt University here in Nashville was named after Cornelius Vanderbilt. The he Commodore. was known as the Commodore. They are now... Uh, or not now they are that's the, their mascot yes the commodore yeah so cornelius vanderbilt was 79 years old when he decided to make a gift that founded vanderbilt university and that would have been in the spring of 1873 so again his grandson was george vanderbilt that we're going to spend most of our time talking about but cornelius passed away in 1877 he left the majority of his fortune valued at $95 million, to his oldest son. In today's dollars, his fortune would be around $2.1 billion. Okay. And um, another sort of Vanderbilt connect, if you're like, no, I thought I knew other Vanderbilts, like Gloria Vanderbilt. Wasn't she a designer? <laughs> Still same family. Um, so George Vanderbilt who built Biltmore, he was Gloria Vanderbilt's great uncle, which if you know Gloria Vanderbilt's family, that would make Anderson Cooper his great, great nephew. Okay. Those are all the Vanderbilt connects I wanted to mention. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are many more, but it, it's certainly one of America's best known families for sure yeah. for their um, endeavors and wealth and yeah all the things I was glad to know George was quite a philanthropist as well yes yes so the the beauty of this home today is that they have faithfully preserved and filled it with the original furnishings in an effort to make you really feel like you're coming in and witnessing and being a part of what they you know what they hosted and what it yeah. looked like and they're um we had a friend even that went last week. So I'm going to, all the photos I'm putting up on our Instagram are her photos from last week. Cause I wanted it to be real recent photos, but she said as well, even with like a lot more rules and signage and social distancing yeah. in place and just all the extra measures they're having to take right now. She said, I still felt hospitality come through in wow. our visit. That's cool. And so that's pretty remarkable. It to really feel is. Like. It, Cause you, when you walk in, you're like, wow, it really does feel like this family just, did they just step Left away town. for like yeah were they for all, spring break yeah did they go to spring break and just never get to come back so it kind of feels like you're like snooping around their home but um yeah so we wanted to just walk through this grand estate well 
It is grand, and it's almost hard to know where to start. But I did a lot of my research um, on the actual building of the yeah. estate because yeah. I think that's amazing how yes. that was all done. Um, if you've never been to see this home, um, it is so set apart location wise mm, that true that really plays into if you think about the time it was built which was um, late 1800s. So mm-hmm. it basically took about six years, 1889 to eight, wait, 1889 to 1895. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So think about that time frame, and think about just being in the middle of all these scenic hills and mountains. Right. Um, both of those things are going to play into why this was such a big deal. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> Building something this amazing in New York City would have been a big deal but there was already a lot of um, roads roads and (laughs) things and so here we're talking nothing like that Um, and also uh, yeah just the teaming that had to go into building this was quite something so um, let's just begin with the dream that George Vanderbilt had yes so um, and you have to be a dreamer to come up with something like this. A visionary. Yes. To come up with something like this. So first of all, he was well-traveled. Um, they had money. Right. So his he and his mother traveled a lot. Um, and I thought this was cool in a um, writing that he had made to the person who's going to become the landscape architect. Okay, yeah. Um, I wanted to start with this because okay. this is kind of where it all began. So this is a writing by George. I came to Asheville with my mother. We found the air mild and invigorating, and I thought well of the climate. I enjoyed the distant scenery. I took long rambles and found pleasure in doing so. In one of them, I came to this spot under favorable circumstances and thought the prospect finer than any other I had seen. It occurred to me that I would like to have a house here. The land was beyond the field of speculation, and I bought a piece of it at a low rate. Then, when I began to consider the matter more seriously, I saw that if I built upon it, I should not have pleasant neighbors. So I sent Mr. McNamee down here to buy some of them out, and step by step, without any definite end in view, I have acquired about 2,000 acres. Wow. So Mr. McNamee is who he is, his attorney. Yeah, okay. From New York, yeah. who later moves to Asheville to yeah. help him with all of this. Wow. And like I said, this was um, written to... Olmstead, who is um, the landscape Frederick Law Olmstead, who becomes the landscape architect. Wow! And this actually, I want to give credit, comes from a book called Biltmore Estate: The Most Distinguished Private Place by John Bryan. I got quite a bit of information yeah, from this book just because book. it talks a lot about the building process. Yeah. But I thought that is so cool that that was the moment when he had this vision of wanting to be there. Yeah. And wanting it to be not in a crowded street or something like that. Like, I want to have this view. Yeah. So I'm going to have to buy more than just one plot of land. More than what I plan to, (laughs) on my own foot traffic, sort of use. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point in time, he had about 2,000 acres when he wrote that. And most, they they believe he probably paid between 5 to $20 per acre at that time. That's so weird. Wow. But... 
By the time this was all said and done, he had 125,000 acres. That's so crazy. So crazy. Um, Yeah, so you heard us mention early on that now it's down to 8,000 acres, so it has... It's gotten down smaller in size, but part of that is even a national forest. It is. So that is called that Pisgah National Forest. And so some of you have maybe even hiked around in there. So it's still not occupied by neighbors, even though it's not the residences anymore. That's exactly right. That's so fun. Well, I can't even just say how important this team was that kind of it wasn't just George Vanderbilt that yeah came up with this plan couldn't be um and I almost feel funny even just calling Olmsted a landscape architect because he was quite a forestry expert Mm. and like some of this when they first got a hold of it was not in like the soil wasn't in good shape and like he just was so knowledgeable about step by step what they needed to do well, that's funny that you're you're even starting with this because, as I mentioned, our friend Carla that was there last week, I asked her, what stood out? I mean, just give me like a couple of nuggets. That was the one thing she said. The coolest relation, relationship that was highlighted was the one between George and the architect and gardener who designed the grounds. The, wow. Oh, sorry. There, She's calling that three different people. George, the architect, and the gardener. Okay. Hunt is the okay. architect. Okay. So sorry, Richard jumped, Morris Hunt. I jumped a little ahead. Sorry. Um, but she said the three worked tirelessly to design every inch of the property, and George paid much respect to them with huge portraits of them in one room. Okay. So. Now, yeah, it just can't, I mean, it's, they were so important. Mm-hmm. I think they had their tiffs among each other <laughs> as well, sure. but yes. yet teamed well yeah. overall. And these were experts too. So right. Hunt, this architect had built really fine Fifth Avenue homes for the Vanderbilt wow. family already. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was quite well traveled and had, I believe, he studied in France and knew a lot about the chateaus there, and yes. which is going to play into the plans here. Um, and Olmsted, the landscape architect, was quite renowned as well. He had um, designed; he had been designing for twenty three years, and he had been responsible for. 37 public parks, 12 suburban developments, 13 college campuses, the grounds of several large preparatory schools, 11 hospitals and institutions, including part of Central Park. So, wow, dude's got it going on. Got a little resume going there. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, this was a team that uh, was ready to do something glorious. Yeah. Now, I did think it was funny. I'm jumping ahead in my actual notes, but I did think it was funny that the early designs of the Biltmore, they believe um, his plan was to be a home of about 6,500 square feet. (laughs) And I got so tickled when I read that because one of the important things early on that happened was that George traveled to England and France with the architect, Richard Morris Hunt. Okay. And they go to tour a bunch of these chateaus. For inspiration. For inspiration, sure. yeah. kind of to get the idea of like what you what he likes and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And I thought, is that not just how it goes? We have our plan of what mm-hmm. we really need and yeah. what we would like. Even what's a big dream for us. And yeah. then we go look at what other people have done. <laughs> it was like his modern day Pinterest moment. He exactly. Pinning and comparing and yeah, he's that like, comparison thing. Yeah. I tell you what. So we went from sixty five hundred square feet to this home is a 
175,000 square feet. I'm not really sure how that jumped quite that's so a, That's an far. insane jump. And it was going to be a two-story brick colonial revival style house. Okay. And we went to a French Renaissance chateau. Yeah. So. With 250 rooms. 250 rooms. I can't even wrap my mind around that. Which also includes 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, and 65 fireplaces. <laughs> and that means you're ready to entertain, And too, it does. Right? That means, yes. It, We're going to have exactly. a lot of people that aren't spending the night, but yep. they are. Yes. That is so true. They are going to need here to hang. a restaurant. Yes. Um, well, it was a French Renaissance chateau is the architectural style. Um, from these travels in May and June of 1889, when George traveled with this architect, they um, there was two places in particular that really stood out that had influence on what became Biltmore. Mm -hmm. um, one is called the Waddesdon Manor in Buckinghamshire, England. Okay. Which was completed in 1883 for the Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild. All right. And the Chateau du Blois. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. B-L-O-I-S. Uh, which is in France. It's much older. It opened in 1608. Wow. And okay. I thought one of the things I read about it that was amazing was that was where Joan of Arc went to be blessed by the archbishop. Oh, my gosh. So th that's like. That's old. Wow. Okay. So let me just build up this story as, as what I've read about it. Okay. So as he's, as George Vanderbilt is buying up all of this acreage, he's actually having his attorney, Charles McNamee, handle that so he's buying up these small farms right in his own name in McNamee's name oh so they, they so that there know. would not be speculation of oh, oh. it's a Vanderbilt you oh, know okay because okay. as I mentioned early on like that people would have known that family oh name. for sure for sure yeah. yeah so but word starts getting out that he's amassing all of this land and so there's kind of a frenzy around what's going to happen what's mm -hmm. going to happen he's getting all this you know thousands of acres and then on October the 19th of 1889, word gets out that there is going to be a model of the home delivered to Hunt's New York office Oh, via like, horse and carriage. I mean, keep in mind, wow. you know, the times here. So this would be like the first time people are laying eyes on, what on this anything about what like. it might even be. Wow. And so, um, yeah, the newspapers are there. Hundreds of people are gathered to feast yeah. their eyes on this glorious model of what yeah. will be wow that is a big deal i bet there was like that was like their modern day paparazzi moment exactly yeah exactly and we both wanted to we wanted to mention well yeah also major something else that component was... here he's a bachelor i mean talk about there's not just interested people for the sake of this is great sort of gossip if you will there's some ladies lining up probably. Don't to you see. know every single interior designer was like in a frenzy to just bat their lashes in hopes of landing this account and actually doing it the way they want in case he falls in love with them. Yeah, or, or their daughter or like <laughs> For I mean, sure. anyone. That's like, right. Just let's get somebody married into this family <laughs> or with this bachelor. So hilarious. Very, very interesting to think of a bachelor taking this on by himself. I know. I mean, we, we haven't, we've said already he had a great team, but. With, but but with, the pocketbook is held by one single dude. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Um, And I will talk about later on more about that, uh, you know, relation, relationally, yes. how that played out. Yes. Well, 
Um, one, one thing I just can't get over when I think about, and I, I remember the first time I visited just thinking like, wow, this is so out here, which is what makes it so spectacular mm-hmm. is the views from every angle and all of that. But y'all to think about undertaking a building project like this, the, you had to have these, all of these materials delivered and there's no railroad in this area to come up right. to this place. Right. So he had to build the railroad. Oh my gosh. To bring the supplies, he had to build what they now call Biltmore Village. Right. Yeah. Housing. Yeah. It's a whole development. It's literally a planned community for the workers that were going to be working. So they had to have a church and schools. Oh my gosh. It was segregated. So they had wow. to have two schools, like all of that. He had to build all of that. He wanted this bad. He wanted And the this- church still stands. That, oh, that's that cool. was built. Yeah. yeah. Um, he had to build a railroad depot, you know, for these yeah. materials to come in and yeah. just all of that. So just when I think about that, and then in addition, we have to have a water source. I mean, there's the French Broad River is close by, but we've got to get water to here. Right. We have to have um, a stone quarry to build oh this. Yeah. We have to have a brick making factory and a woodworking facility. Wow. So he has to do all of that without even having the house built yet. Right. And all of that just blows my mind. Well, by the spring of 18, I have, yeah, by the spring of 1893, the estate employed 580 men. Wow. Um, the highest point was in 94 and 95, and I didn't get the actual number of that, but it got higher than 580. Mm-hmm. Um, and his plan all along was he wanted to be in by the Christmas of 1895. Okay. Goal so set. it wasn't like, you know, in June of 1895, he said, I want to be in by yeah. Christmas. Like he, he wanted, to, wanted that, that to be. Yeah. Christmas was a big deal yeah. for him. Still a bachelor, but yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that I found really interesting from this book um, was there was letters coming in by in droves every day of people wanting to sell things all different kinds of things so they may say like we've got you know i don't even know moose heads that you're going to want to hang in your yeah um yeah billiard room or we've got we've got all the fabrics you need we've got all the that's it yeah like everything under the sun yes that he could possibly want they were everybody wanted to make a dime off of this project yes and i just thought god i can't even imagine yeah um he did try to use a lot of local labor there was certain skilled laborers that they had to bring in from elsewhere Mm because they didn't have any in that right they they looked but there just weren't any yeah um and I don't know why, but I just find all of these little details interesting. Um, so he's built this railroad to bring in supplies, but it's also the locomotive that will pull the cars of workmen in. So it arrived at 7.30 a.m. each workday Yep, with the people on That's it. That's awesome. Wow. They had to work six days a week for 10 hours a day. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. It later became nine hours a day because they kind of started making some demands, mm-hmm. you know, where I guess this was before um, union. Right. But they're was like, working for we're them. tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're running us ragged. So six days a week, nine hours a day. The highest paid were the stone cutters. Okay. They made 350 per day. The next highest were the cabinet makers. They made between 225 and 275 per day. But the typical labor 
received a dollar a day. Okay. Wow. They were sent home without pay if rain or frost happened oh, and it okay. kept them from work. Um, and there's lots more details. I think that's enough. Yeah. For, uh, I wonder what those that. wages equate to but today. But apparently it was a very fair that wage. That was a fair wage? It was okay. not just a fair wage. I mean, he also, apparently he was pretty good to his well, that's good. employees. Yeah. Um, which also comes out at Christmas and celebrations and stuff where he was real good to them. But even with thinking through him, making sure they had what they needed for housing and school. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he did do all of the right things for them to have a thriving life. Yeah. Um, Some may say working six days a week isn't, but yeah, that was a short term. You know, he had this goal in mind. Yeah. So, yeah, that's awesome. Well, should we talk about some of the house features? Yes. It's, you, like you've already said, it's French Chateau, and yes. it is. Like you set your eyes on it, and it is so French looking. Yes. So. Lots of cool details in the works of, you know, like there's some V's for Vanderbilt and some mm-hmm. of the dormers mm-hmm. and different things like that. Not gaudy. Just mm-hmm. little cool details like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the first two Otis passenger elevators ever in the Southeast were in these, was in this home. It did have two elevators. Um, Five mechanically operated refrigerators walk-in size. That was a huge deal. Whoa. Yeah. We've talked a lot on this podcast before about how big of a deal it was when ice came into the picture. Yes. And who had ice and how they used ice and when you didn't have ice, why they did things the way they did. Yeah. So, yeah, refrigeration yeah. is a huge That was huge a huge benefit. thing. And having five of that size was also showing you he was planning on doing a lot of entertaining. Yes. Um, they did have hot water throughout the house. Wow. Very. Wow. That's a big deal. Wow. That was not the norm. Um, uh, I think it was, was it, did I say 65 fireplaces? Yes, you did. Um, and it also had radiators that put steam heat into the home. That was Gosh, very unusual. Very. It had an internal telephone system. Yes. <laughs> like the call calling. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about it in a house of that size, when you're talking about 175,000 square feet, you really almost have to have that. Yeah. Think about the time it would take just to... Communicate. communicate from one room yeah. to another so you really i mean but doesn't that remind you of the opening of downton abbey oh for the, sure the ringing of the bell <laughs> for just that, sure. that visual That's exactly what that opens yeah yeah um it had a master clock system throughout the house that kept all the clocks the same wow and i was thinking is that not a business person i yes. mean it's like no i don't you're not going to use the excuse that yours was 10 minutes off wow from mine yes they're all going to be the same <laughs> I want that for my house right now. <laughs> That's cool. And another thing that blew my mind for some reason was that I read the exterior and the roof are both fireproof. No wood. Oh, okay. Um, So just to think through the cost of that, yeah. to keep that from being an issue. Yeah. You know, it's not that everything in the interior was fireproof, but the yeah. exterior isn't going to burn down. Yeah. That's easily. crazy. Yeah, I know. Um, the, the, he's again, very interesting that, you know, he's in his late twenties, uh, maybe almost 30 by this time. And he's this forward thinking without a wife and kids already in the picture. Yeah. Like he is, he's preserving this big time. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, you wonder where it did, did somebody else, he's seen somebody else's house burn down right. that caused him to say, I'm not doing, I'm not having yeah. that happen. Yeah. Um, I've already mentioned he loved to travel. He had been traveling to Africa, Asia, Europe. Um, and when he was on these trips, he began purchasing a lot of rare art, Sheraton and Chippendale furniture, rare books, expensive novelties and tapestries. Um, and again, buying it is one thing. It's got an expensive price tag, but now you got to get it home. Get it home. Cross and, the pond. Yeah. But he had um, more than five football fields of space to fill. <laughs> wow. I like to think of it like that. Hearing <laughs> four acres of floor space is one thing, but thinking of five football fields, oh I've got gosh. a good picture of what that looks like. Wow. Um, furnishings were delivered from many countries. Uh, he was an art lover. See, I was just born at the wrong time. <laughs> we would have been such the match. Um, he filled his home with 70,000 objects, including 16th century Flemish tapestries, which I remember the that from the visit. I remember that room mm. really standing out mm -hmm. to me that had the tapestries. It was so beautiful. Um he had a he has a chess set once owned by Napoleon. Gosh, <laughs> I feel like Napoleon makes his way into every sort right. of very rich person's wealthy estate. Owned way too much. Um, in the banquet hall, which is such a spectacular room, mm -hmm. there's a forty foot long table. It seats sixty four people. Amazing. They all have their own bathroom, I guess. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> That's, right. That's hilarious. Or their own fireplace. Sorry, their own oh, fireplace. Oh, you're right. You're yeah. right. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. Um, in the library, uh, he has ten, more than 10,000 books. And last but not least, his art collection, 85 paintings from artists such as Renoir, Sargent, Whistler, Pellegrini, and Baldini. So, oh my gosh. Wow. So in 1895, on October the 26th, Hey, that's my birthday. Not that year, obviously. <laughs> he moves in at age 33. Yes. Not to his actual room, okay. but to, the, to a part that was already finished, which funny enough was the bachelor's quarters. That's funny. They had a whole bachelor's quarters area. And like which, women literally couldn't go in there. Right. Yeah. I think this is cool though, because they were, they wanted to have that knowing there was going to be lots of sporting and things mm -hmm. that went on. So they had that all kind of in one area, mm -hmm. the billiards room and all of that, where they could do their thing. The ladies that spent the night would be in actual bed, other bedrooms yes. in the home. Yes. But he knew that needed to be separate. Yeah. You know, not to cause a, too much of a um, stir up in the We've, there's, already enough reputation. there's already enough talk about this house. We probably don't need to stir up anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there again, when you think about a show like The Bachelor, this is very different times. They, they thought through keeping yeah. people separate. Yeah. Things like that. Anyway. Um, <laughs> the Bachelor. <laughs> would this not have been this like would be, next level? Yes. Um, anyway. So the house, when he moved in, things were not completed yet mm -hmm. but he wanted to be you know really close in the works of it all and i'm sure he was getting excited Good oh my Lord. gosh um as anyone would yeah I, yeah i'd be like jonesing after six months like let's get this I know, going i can't guys. imagine a six-year project no. how that how crazy that would be because he'd been living with his parents mm -hmm. up until this mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. he did have a yacht that he um 
That was like his first own big purchase. We're like, we don't feel sorry for you, George. I don't. But he's, you know, living with his parents still. Um, anyway, okay, so when you passed through, when you came through the front gate mm-hmm. of this estate, it's going to take several minutes Mm-hmm. driving twisting through especially if you think about horse and carriage and stuff yes. it's gonna take a while um it's a three mile roadway that again this olmstead had all designed it was um thickets of pine dogwoods and rhododendron i can wow. just imagine how charming this drive would wow. be Ugh. a couple more of the things i wanted to mention about the rooms uh-huh. um in that banquet room I was talking about, that's, I mean, so massive and beautiful. Despite its 72-foot ceiling and the dining room table that seats 64 guests, the acoustics in that room of that hall were so good that conversations could be held from opposite ends of the room. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Isn't that so cool? Yeah. And I was thinking in a room like that, you would often have music probably too mm-hmm. for me, you know, parties and things. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, wow. I love that. Um, it takes several hours to go through the Biltmore. To tour it, yes. And um, it does, you know, with several. all of those bedrooms and everything. There's also a heated indoor swimming pool, a bowling alley. A 70,000 gallon swimming pool yes <laughs> holy moly definitely yeah. was not the norm um downstairs in the kitchen there's quarters on the estate for 80 servants okay so um they at least at that point were in the mm-hmm. village right they were now in the home as well yeah. and from everything i've read he was really good to good. his staff good. which is what you want to hear yes, right it is um but everything had led up to this big Christmas he, when he wanted um, to be that's right it wasn't completely the court champagne to celebrate yeah but he had his family for that first Christmas okay um on December 20th 22nd 1895 um America's most eligible bachelor awaited the arrival of his first guest Aww. his mother and 26 other relatives wow came Wow. It would be the largest gathering of his family since the death of his father 10 years earlier, mm-hmm. William H. Vanderbilt. And it was the official opening of the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, oh, did, we didn't talk about the the name. Oh, do you Biltmore. know about the name? I do. So, um, and I don't have notes on that. I just remember it. Um, built. It was actually, I think, B-I-L-D-T. Okay. Was from his family's name okay and um more having to do with like those rolling hills and everything built more oh okay um that name i think was not just his i think again it was a teaming Mm -hmm. of hunt and olmstead kind of right coming together with this name but anyway that's uh, awesome that's where the name came from well Let's talk about Eden. A few years later. (laughs) So now he's mid-30s. And um, again, so he's been living in the Biltmore by himself. So wild. I say by himself. I'm just With all his. I'm just trying to be dramatic about it. (laughs) Uh, But he did meet Edith. I don't know how to say her middle name. Edith Dresser. Dresser. Yeah. In Paris. They met in Paris. And she was actually orphaned. Her parents died, and so she was raised by her grandparents, and then they died, and so she was Mm. orphaned again, 
And so her and her sisters had moved to Paris because the cost of living was cheap. But interesting. They still must have been in some societal circles. For sure. To have brushed shoulders with him. Yeah. So I think if I remember in reading that she had spent a good bit of time in Newport, which is where his family summered. <laughs> I love saying words like that. They summered in Newport. Um, anyhow, it's likely that the couple met through George's matchmaking relatives. So Edith was a decade younger than yeah, George. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she was friends with several of his sisters and nieces. So she and her sisters were in Paris, like you said. And, um, of course, George was traveling and mm-hmm. that's where they met yeah. was during his travels. Um, and they renewed their acquaintance. It wasn't the first time they'd ever met. Okay, yeah. But they renewed their acquaintance there yeah. and started this transatlantic courtship. <laughs> <laughs> that's an awesome phrase right there. But when they um, got engaged, um, it was a very hot topic in the newspapers. I'm sure. Just in the U.S. alone, there were more than 60 articles published about his forthcoming wedding. Wow. <laughs> And that was also in a day and age. Like, can you even imagine now? What they're expecting. So that's interesting because despite the speculation, the couple decides to be wed and they wanted to wed in Paris with as little fanfare as As possible. possible. So crazy. George and Edith were first married in a 15-minute civil ceremony on June 1st, 1898 at 3 p.m. by the mayor of Paris at the town hall. And I thought this was fun. Natalie Brown, which is one of Edith's sisters, provided two bottles of special champagne, which their maternal grandmother had set aside at Edith's birth. No. To be served on her wedding day. How special is that? And I thought, I've never heard of anybody doing that. I love that That idea. That is so fun. At the birth. So Edith's born, her grandmother says, I'm going to go ahead and buy champagne because this young lady's going to get married one day. <gasps> How sweet. I know. Loved that. I loved that. So what I couldn't find, but I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that Edith had never been to Biltmore, though, before she came home as Oh, my George's Lord. Wife. Now, surely she's, she's heard about it. Of course she's heard about it, but it's different to hear about You're it. You're right. So I couldn't find anything for sure to confirm that. But okay. from what I have read and heard about her arrival, this had to have been her first time there. You know, can't even imagine with her little travel trunks and coming up the way. <laughs> her new wedding band. Like, yeah. So, yes. So the welcome home was that long drive that you were talking mm-hmm. about. All of the staff lined up to welcome I could cry. her. They had flowers that spelled out welcome home, like in the lawns, in some area of, of the lawn. And um, yeah, can you imagine like... I've dreamed of this my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> this is your new home. I just, yeah. So they had one daughter, Cornelia, George and Edith's, Edith's only child was born. So in 1914, George actually passed away at age 51 i just oh so young and um it was complications from an appendectomy or something it was yeah 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 
So he was only 51. He is um, buried up in Staten Island. That's where a where lot of they their, were from. their yeah. family. Again, he was a big philanthropist. Um, Edith, his wife, um, continued to be the head of the estate and run it as best she could. She did end up selling those 87,000 acres of the estate to the United States for forestry use that we mentioned right. earlier. Um and let's see, in 1930 was when um, Cornelia had been married. So Cornelia married John Cecil, but then they divorced four years later. So I think it's very odd that she never came back to the I estate. Know. But that's what I read is that when they divorced, she left him the estate, basically. And maybe that was... I don't know if that was customary for just in general divorce no relationships idea. at that so time, bizarre. but it certainly feels very odd at something. And they had this. two kids. Um, did right? they? Yes, they had two kids. Yeah. So the Cecils, so now this is John Cecil, that's who Cornelia married. The Cecils, um, now they're running the estate. And I thought it was so interesting that. They responded to requests to um, increase area tourism during the Depression. Yes. And um, during World War II, the house housed famous artwork from the National Gallery so as to not lose it in any potential attacks. Interesting. So they moved lots okay. of different works I didn't of know art that. That's cool. to the estate for, for protection. Um in the 70s, they planted a vineyard. They do have a full vineyard yep. there now. You can... I think um, that... Did that open in the 80s? Like, by 85, it was like a okay. thriving winery. Yeah. And they're thri those grapes are thriving now because they're making 75,000 cases of wine or 900,000 bottles annually. Wow. Um, and they, again... That's 94 acres that the vineyards cover. And 75 acres are landscaped gardens. So, wow. So the um, some of these that we're describing are separate tickets, and some of these are going to be included in your day pass. You can just look on the website to see kind of what you're interested in touring. Yeah. You want to do like a wine tasting, that's going to be a, a different ticket than obviously your tour of the home. And since we're talking tickets, I mean, go ahead and know this is like amusement park pricing not museum pricing it i is, mean it's a full day deal it starts at 65 dollars a okay. ticket children 12 and under half that okay and it's funny or not funny but just awesome the way that they do incorporate kids you everything we've described you would probably think sounds a little cold and museum like if you're 12 and under uh-huh but they have a completely different audio tour that's kid-friendly. Oh, that's cute. That's telling them stories and putting things in their language. So yeah. I always recommend an, whatever you're touring to do, go ahead the and audio get the tour. audio tour. Because it's usually only like 5 or $6 more. And you learned so much. And Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. But yeah, to your point, please plan lots of time. This and is, walking. Like you're going to be yes, walking. This is not a... Um, even a museum type of visit. This is not a couple of hours. No. I think our friend Carla that just went said that they walked six and a half miles. I mean, they did the gardens, wow. the whole thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, I mean, it is going to be. I mean, I know they have, um, you know, handicap friendly. Right. You know, where you could, if you're in a wheelchair or something, you can do this. But I yeah. just, 
want people to know you're covering ground. Yeah, and you know, depending on if you've got nice weather, you you're going to want to. There's rooftops that you can tour. Um, we've described a lot outside. There's servant the servants' quarters. You can you know tour those as well. There's hiking. There's yeah. canoe rentals. What? There's, I, I didn't know. know all that. There's carriage rides. You know, there's obviously lots of places to eat because tourism just kind of demands that, honestly. Right, right. Um, Asheville's got a great food scene, by the way. That's true. Yeah. That's so a whole nother episode. But... Leaving the property. But yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, right now, from April 1st through May 27th, uh, as spring splendor unfolds across the estate, thousands of blooms create a tapestry of color from radiant shades of red, blue, purple, and pink in the beds and borders of our walled garden to vibrant coral, magenta, and lilac hues accenting surrounding landscapes. So, of course, I'm reading just from their website. But, yeah, so there is lots of just beautiful gardens to yeah. go appreciate well, that's why we wanted to do this right now is you know christmas and spring are the times to go see this beautiful home yeah yeah and i actually found another great podcast called see america so okay. i'll link to their episode on the biltmore um, I found them in doing this research. They're a couple that has been living in an RV for about five or six years and wow. doing a podcast on just seeing different America. things they're seeing. So, <laughs> um, but they had a really great, just like maybe a 20 minute Biltmore okay. episode that was very informative too. So we could talk about the Biltmore for two hours probably. Well, just one other thing I have to say, because it was so funny. You may have to put on our Instagram. So I, in looking at pictures of George Vanderbilt. Yeah. Um, had kind of an, I'm like, he, you know, he looks like to me <laughs> and I did a side by side. Now so I'm, I'm very have curious. To show you. Who? He reminds me of Sasha Bear. Yes. Sasha Bear. Oh my gosh. How do you say it? Cohen? Cohen. As Borat. Whoa. That's I who he looks totally like. See that. But, I can't unsee it But now. more handsome, right? Or maybe well, it's just because he's in a collared shirt. If he didn't act so nice. crazy, I don't think he's unhandsome. Like yeah, when he, you know. That's true. But oh my gosh, I did a side by side, and I'm like, it's Borat. That is except hilarious. hopefully he acted much nicer than Borat. That is hilarious. Wow. Well, I can't. I have to say one little thing. I had all these notes about Christmas, but I just thought it was so special that on Christmas, that first Christmas, and it has, you know, apparently. It went on his whole, as long as he was alive. He always did a very special Christmas for all the employees where he gave oh, gifts to all the kids. Wow. Um, Edith even kept up with what they had given each kid. So they had new, like kept good oh records. So they gave them different things, you know, not a repeat. Right. I just love that. They were that good to their so people. sweet. Yes. yes. And it's good people. That's We're right. good. Well, I'm I'm very thankful for the family, you know, opening it up and letting all of us kind of get Share to be in a the, part. I in mean, the I know grandeur. I know we're handing them our money to do so, but still, they don't have to do that. So, yeah. um, I know it's helped with tourism there, but it's also just a really special thing to get to see. Like we started this episode out saying all the intricacies and furnishings yeah. and just everything that's still intact today. So. Yeah, their numbers skyrocketed after I-40 went in, too. I mean, they have a million visitors a year now. Yeah, uh, yeah. It used to be more like, you know, yeah. I don't know, in the thousands. Yeah, and they, like I said, they have some 
COVID restrictions. So just check the website if you're needing to know for safety reasons, like what all they're doing different. So, but it's, it, it will hold its own. I mean, there's people I know who visited from China and yeah. Europe. And sometimes yeah. you think like, gosh, their stuff is so grand and so old. But Biltmore will be impressive. And again, because of the location, too. Yeah. I mean, it is just literally dropped in the mountains. And you're like, wow. Yeah. We have just come across something special. So put Biltmore on your list. That's right. Okay, sis. I'm going to go have some... Sweet dreams of riding up in the carriage with welcome home. Oh. Maybe some <laughs> what Edith must have felt. So sweet, so special. Yeah, no bachelor episode can ever, ever come ever close to that, to that sort of home visit. Wow. Yeah. All right. Peace be with you. And also with y'all.